So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 14 through 41 this morning. And um, while you're turning there, just super excited about Baptism Sunday. Had um, a few just incredible testimonies of God's grace earlier uh, in the prior two services. And so excited to hear uh, these two after uh, this service or at the conclusion of this service. And it's really great where we are in Acts. We see Peter's command to his hearers to repent and be baptized. We see this as the response to genuine faith is in obedience, not in any sort of like saving way, but when you do have saving faith, then you respond with baptism. So it's, it's great we get to, um, to see that uh, illustration in action uh, this morning. So the passage that we're in is picking up from where Pastor Josh left off um, last week where the Holy Spirit dropped on the apostles at Pentecost, and Peter commences this sermon explaining why the apostles were showing these signs and, and wonders, speaking in tongues. And if you can remember, they were accused of being drunk um, as to why they were speaking in tongues. I've never known a, a drunk man to be able to fluently speak another language, but that's kind of the absurdity with their opposition to this gospel spreading. And really, there is so much gold in this passage that um, because of time constraints, we're not able to pick up every single piece. And so we're just going to pick up a few of the, the bigger nuggets, and uh, I encourage you to, to go back and, and pick up the rest during your quiet time this week. So for me, and maybe some of y'all, I grew up with the gospel message around me for over 20 years of my life. I grew up as a professing believer in this gospel, a gospel that I was able, that I, you know, understood, uh, was able to articulate. Um, I would say I believed it to be true, and yet I was not cut to the heart by it. I was not cut to the heart and emptied to the point of genuine repentance. And so I think some of the folks that might be here sitting in our, these chairs this morning and listening online, you might be in the same spot that I was in for over 20 years of my life, a dangerous spot to be. And yet others, probably most others here this morning, have been truly deeply cut by the gospel message and have genuinely responded in faith and repentance but you've arrived this morning weary and heavy laden, hurt by the sins that you've committed, hurt by the sins that others have committed against you, hurt by the realities of this fallen world. And so I pray that you would hear this message this morning and not think this is about somebody else, because this is for all of us, and that you would walk out of here encouraged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet there might still be others that are here that will be hearing this message clearly for the first time in their life. And I just want to say to all of us, and I've been praying this all week, that everyone listening this morning hears these words and responds in faith. If I were to say this passage and, and compress it into a sentence, I would say that the unchanging judge, the Lord God, this merciful judge freely gives the gift of salvation to sinners who by faith 
receive his word and repent. Let's read the text. Starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. But this is what they but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show you one, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on this throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you 
and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we open up your text, Lord, um, this effort is futile unless your spirit is moving and working both in the words and in the hearts of the hearers. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do the effective work in our hearts, that as we hear your truths, every one of us would respond in faith, Lord, and that that would be to um, your glory and our good, the good of the bride, Lord. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So hear these words and respond. The first point is, the judge is merciful to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So call on his name. Peter begins this defense of the apostles speaking in tongues with a citation from the prophet Joel. And this is a passage that would have been all too familiar to these Jewish hearers that were listening. And so they would have readily understood it. We, maybe not so much. So let me give you some quick context on the book of Joel. So it starts, and God's people are under his heavy hand of discipline. They have rebelled against God, and God was bringing uh, judgment on them. And he had brought in locusts, and they had destroyed all of Israel's crops, and they were in a bad spot. And so, as oftentimes happens when God puts us in a bad spot, he is doing it for a purpose, and this purpose was for them to respond in repentance. And so Joel actually leads them through this, him personally repenting, the, the, the nation repenting, and what does God do? What does he do throughout the scriptures? We see this is he, in his great mercy, relents. And so he relents, and he promises them blessing and um, provision and protection from their enemies. And then this is where we pick up in this passage where the prophet Joel speaks of, uh, speaks and promises an even greater blessing to come. And a, a greater blessing that we see that Christ, the Messiah, will usher in, where all will receive the Spirit. And so that's this quote from uh, verses 17 through 21 is this quotation from the book of Joel. And so what we're going to do is just because we're constrained by time, we're just going to walk through a couple of main points or a couple of kind of key ideas in this text. And then we're going to talk about how this applies to us today. So starting in verse 17, we see the last days. You might say, well, what is the last days? And so what Joel is referring to here is this next period, this last period of God's salvation history, right? So since our rebellion against God in the garden, there have been these different periods of salvation history, and this last epic of salvation history has been ushered in by Christ's ascension, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And things change. And so like we see here, things that change are all believers would get the Holy Spirit. So heretofore, the only ones that had the Spirit were that would that would 
have access to the Spirit were the prophets and the kings and the priests. And so essentially the Spirit would discriminate. And what, he, what Joel is describing is a day when the Spirit wouldn't discriminate, but would, would be made available to all who believe in faith. And so this same Spirit that manifests in the apostles speaking in tongues and sharing uh, the wonders of God to all of these nations that were gathered, that same Spirit that empowered that work is the same Spirit that you and I have access to in faith in Jesus Christ. And so then we see here in verses 17 through 18, these visions and dreams and prophecy, and you might say, well, how does that connect with the speaking in tongues? And um, I think it's clear that these are, th this prophecy is about, um, is meant the manifestation of sign gifts. And so the same sign gifts that would show in, uh, in prophecy and in these dreams and visions are the same, the same sign gift that manifests here with the apostles. So again, Peter's just supporting what they are all bearing witness to, supporting with Old Testament text, pointing to God's eternal plan. This is God's plan the whole way through. And so then we get down into verse 20 and we see the day of the Lord. And this day refers to the day of judgment when Christ will return and establish his reign and he will cut to the heart, but it won't be for the purpose of repentance. It will be the purpose of judgment. And so we're to hear that the day of the Lord is coming. We're in the last days and the day of the Lord is coming. So this should compel us to move now, to move today. And so the reason that the apostles again are speaking in tongues is not because they're drunk as what was um, acute, what they were accused of, but it's because the Holy Spirit has come upon them, just like the prophet Joel told us and told them would happen. And so we're in the last days, so we are, they were too, and we are as well to call on the Lord. And we see God's faithful plan being executed before our eyes. And so as I think about how this would apply to us today, I want to start with one application for the Christian that is currently stuck in some besetting sin. So you might have showed up this morning and you might have been dragged by a roommate or by a parent or by a small group member that you knew was going to be following up with you, but you wanted no part of this because you are dug in on some sin that is wrecking you. And I just want to say that we can look back at God's mercy to his people from the beginning of the Old Testament through the New Testament and even looking to one another in the pews with us and see God's gracious mercy when people call out to him. When they call on his name for forgiveness, he turns to his children. I think of myself and in my own house, if I hear my children in the other room crying out my name genuinely, Dad, I need you. There's no couch that I'm not going to jump over. There's no chair I'm not going to run through to go there to pick them up, to help them, to bandage them up, to care for them. And I'm the most imperfect dad in this room, but I think y'all can relate to that, right? So how much more is our Heavenly Father that has brought you into sonship, how much more will He run to you when you call on His name? The other thing that I want to point to just 
in light of these being the final days. I don't know about you guys, but I am hurting these weeks. These past few weeks, really months, with everything in the national election scene, I'm seeing Christians fighting with each other, really being pretty terrible to each other, uh, based on political lines that have been drawn. And I look around and I think, man, this is, this is tragic. And it's affecting my worship. It's affecting how I carry myself at work. It's affecting how I carry myself in my house. And so this was a, a helpful application that we got from our, um, our sermon prep team lunch. But it's been such an encouragement to me as I've meditated on it this week is that though it's difficult for us to perceive in this moment, there is a higher, more sure, sovereign hand at work, working all things according to the counsel of His will, willing and doing according to His good pleasure for His glory's sake. There is no election. There is no politician. There is no global pandemic. Nothing in all creation can stop God from his merciful work for his own. The great and magnificent day of the Lord will come. So that compels us to call upon the name of the Lord right now in our brokenness. And what it also does practically is it, it requires us to live in light of this truth this very week. So Tuesday... We have a big election. Everybody knows that. We don't know if we're going to know the answers on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. But however it goes, Crossway Bible Church, you people, us, we need to walk out in faith this week, not being being owned and controlled by the um, anxieties and stresses of this election. And there's going to be winners, and there's going to be losers, and there's going to be people in this church that are on both sides of the winning and losing, okay? But if you, so I'll say this, that if you are on the winning side, if you're on the winning side of whatever election is that we don't respond in any sort of gloating way because we got our perceived power from this candidate, but we make sure that everyone around us knows that our hope is not in that candidate, but our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And just like the song says that I will not boast in anything, no gift, no power, no political power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's how we live this week. We don't live like everything, everyone around us. We don't live like the TV networks that are covering this. We live in light of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and our submission to that lordship. And I guess conversely, if, we're, if you, we are on the losing end of some sort of um, election outcome, that was not ever where our hope was. Our hope was never in a man, but again, our hope is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so you live that out. 
You live that out in your place of work. You live that out at school. And when you, when you show up and people are up in arms or people are celebrating and you don't rise to those same levels, and people say, well, what, do you not care about this? No, I, I care deeply about this. Yet my hope is not in that candidate. My hope is not in that party, but my hope is in Jesus Christ. And you be ready to give an account of that faith. So we call on the merciful judge because the Messiah was crucified at your hands. Realize your guilt. So in this next section of text in verses, uh, verses um, 22 through 36, we see Peter continuing this argument um, with two main points. And there, there's, quite frankly, there's a lot of points made in here, but I'm just going to pick up on two of them. One of them is that Jesus is the Messiah, his hearers' long-awaited Savior and Lord. And secondly, they are complicit in his crucifixion. The Messiah case was made by pointing to Jesus' signs and wonders in verse 22 that they themselves know about, was pointing to his death according to God's plan, which we see in verse 23. It was according to God's plan and foreknowledge. And then in verse 24 through 33, we see this case made by proving his resurrection. That he is the Messiah because of this resurrection. And I think to better understand this text, we must put ourselves in the place of these Jewish hearers. Their lives, their parents' lives, their grandparents' lives, and so on, have been spent with the hope that their long-awaited Davidic king, this Messiah, would be coming to restore their kingdom. It was central to their identity. And so how scandalous would it be that what something so central to their identity, this Messiah, that they would soon be accused of being complicit or they are accused of being complicit in his death. And so Peter uses Psalm 16, which is quoted here in verses 25 through 28, to remind them and show them the prophecy of this resurrection from uh, King David about this future Davidic king. Uh, this was shown elsewhere, but he happened to use this text. And so Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter makes this point about Jesus as the Messiah. And then he also makes this point clear that they are complicit in his death. And to be sure, not all 3,000 of these who came to faith were a part of actually nailing Jesus up to the tree or hoisting up the cross. But they were all complicit in his crucifixion. They were all responsible. We see clearly in, in verse 23, he says, you crucified him. And then again in 36, he says, he ends it with, whom you crucified. And we have the luxury of seeing how not just they were complicit for Christ's death, but we see how from the New Testament, the remainder of the New Testament, how every single one of us is complicit in the Messiah's crucifixion. We can look to Romans chapter 3 to know that None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one, which is actually a quote from two Psalms. And then later in Romans 3, Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we see the result of that in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So if you're here today and you don't feel like you need a Savior, hear this. The Savior has come for sinners like you and me. The people of Peter's day didn't feel like they needed a Savior either. Many of these Jews were probably much better rule followers than we were. They'd given their life to comport every part of their body to rigorous regulations and rules, much more than we could imagine, frankly. But they needed to see that you're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. He is Lord and died for sin, that many might come under his very good and eternally consequential rule. So when you think, well, I haven't done that much, Dad. The point is, is that you're either under Christ's lordship or you're against him. Put yourself under his lordship through faith and repentance. And for the Christians, I think that we need to hear this too. That it's our depravity that lets us taste Christ's sweet grace each day. That compels us to worship him. Realizing our complicity in the crucifixion, seeing that daily, is like the gravitational pull that keeps us orbiting around the gospel for our entire Christian lives. The gospel is not something that we believe at one point and we pray about at one point and then we go on living our own Christian lives. Rather, it is the central thing that we revolve around until glory. And so when we sing the hymn, sing the words, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that nailed him there. We can sing that with tears in our eyes, but we can conclude it with fists in the air celebrating Christ's victory over our sin. It was you, it was I that nailed the Savior to the tree. And this truth, this truth must make us hate our sin and must draw us even more to love Jesus' mercy. And we'll get to see that this morning with these baptisms that we get to hear the testimonies of brothers and sisters in Christ saying, I used to love my sin, and now because of Christ and what he has shown me, I love Jesus more. And we can rejoice and celebrate and be renewed together with these testimonies. And so there will be judgment for all on the day of the Lord. And since you're guilty, Repent and be baptized. We see this here in this final section, verses 37 through 41. The hearers respond. They respond humbly. In such a glorious response it is. 
their deep conviction about the reality of their guilt brings them to a point of humility, brings them to a point where they say in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were completely broken. They'd been gutted by the reality of their sin in light of the cross. And I'll just say this, that under the work of the Spirit, you cannot contemplate Christ's crucifixion and not be completely broken or cut to the heart. It's impossible. Under the work of the Spirit, you cannot be, you cannot contemplate Christ's crucifixion and not be gutted and cut to the heart. And so we see their response. It's simple. What shall we do? What do we do? We see ourselves for who we are. What do we do now? And I liken it to a scene in a movie where the bad guy or whatever is caught and you know the murderer, the thief, the whatever, and they realize that everything's going to be taken away. They're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their family. They're going to lose whatever. And they say, what? what just tell me what I need to do and, and I'll make it right. I, don't, don't, don't rat me out. Don't tell me. Don't tell on me. Don't whatever. Put me in jail. And in the movie, it's always like, no, you're going to pay. You're going to pay. And that's like from that point forward, we get to you know, celebrate them paying for their sins. And so I see that with these people. They, they fall down. They've been exposed and they say, what do, what do we need to do? What do I do? And Peter says through the inspiration of the Spirit, repent. That's it. You repent. And be baptized to show on the outside what Christ has done inside of you. And not only that, but it shows that Christ was the one that's actually paying your penalty. In the movies, they have to pay. There has to be judgment. In God's economy, Christ bore our judgment. God gives you faith, and you turn in repentance. And then you show that outward faith through baptism, which we get to see beautifully this morning. And so Luke is a part of this whole transition in verse 37. He says, now when they heard this, and I just thought it was interesting because a couple other spots in Acts, Luke uses that same phrase, now when they heard this. But in these other parts of Acts, there was a different response. The response was, now, now when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. When they heard this gospel, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And another time when they heard this gospel message, they were enraged and they ground their teeth. See, guys, there are two responses to the gospel. There's one of humility that falls on your knees and says, what do I do? I will follow you. What, what, what do I do? And there's another that maybe is a little more polite on the outside, maybe not as you know, outwardly aggressive and grinding of teeth. But it's that same heart. It's a heart of rebellion. It's a heart of pride. It's a heart of self-rule. And so 
I just ask that if you're here, for everyone listening here or at home, you might be hearing this for the first time. You might not be hearing it for the first time, but you might say, this is something that I don't believe. Or you might have heard this for the millionth time. You might be a lifelong churchgoer, church server, church giver, but you've never been cut to the heart by your sin and the reality of your complicity in the crucifixion. Spurgeon said in a sermon, pastor said, Christ on the cross will save no one unless Christ is in the heart. And Christ enters our hearts through hearts that have been cut and humbled by the reality of our complicity in the, in, in the crucifixion. It's not a matter of knowing the blameless Christ died on the cross. It's believing and being cut to the heart. That's what leads to true repentance. When the Spirit works and moves, that is what leads to faith and repentance. Like the man in the movies that's losing everything, you similarly cry out, I'll do anything, Lord, I'll do anything. And he just says, put your faith in Christ. He's done it all. And for those of us that might be concerned, well, what's on the other side of that? I'd be giving up so much. I have so much in this life that I, that I hold dear. I love this quote from Thomas Watson saying, Upon our turning to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than ever was lost in Adam. God says to the repenting soul, I will clothe you with the robe of righteousness. I will enrich you with the jewels and graces of my spirit. I will bestow my love upon you. There is more for you on this side of salvation. Trust in him. No one is too far off. If you're sitting there thinking, you don't know what I've done. I don't, but Christ does. And his grace and his mercy is more powerful, stronger, is more than your sin. And that goes for us that, more, that, that are grieved by wandering family members, children, thinking, Oh, they're too far off. They are not too far off from the grace of God. So we continue to be faithful, praying and sharing the gospel with the hope that he will save. And the same for your coworkers. And so you step out in faith and you share the gospel with them. Again, I just ask that you not leave here. No matter who you are, whether you've been following Christ for 50 years or you've been following Christ for five minutes, that you would not leave this room without crying out to him in faith and repentance.